America's LGBTQ community says it's living in a state of emergency. The Human Rights Campaign reports over 500 anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in 41 states this year, and more than 75 have become law, and many of them deal with the right to health care. And just because we do not have all the research done doesn't mean you ban gender-affirming care legislatively across the board and increase further barriers for kids and adolescents in particular, but also adults. Our guests are Dr. Marwan Haddad, the immediate past chair of the HIV Medicine Association, and Dr. Carl Street, the research lead for the Gender Care Center at Boston Medical Center, where he helps to assess and address the health and well-being of transgender and gender diverse individuals. I think one thing also to really point out around these bans is they're, they're hyper-focused around access to medications and surgery when gender-affirming care is really much more than either of those. And the care needed for youth is often more focused around educating the family, making sure the youth is supported, that they have a safe environment and that their community is safe for them. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, welcome Dr. Haddad and Dr. Street to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Thank good you. to see you both. Let's start with Dr. Street. You're on the faculty at Boston University's Chobanian and Avedisian School of Medicine. In November, you'll become the president of the U.S. Professional Association for Transgender Health. The Human Rights Campaign says 35% of transgender youth live in states that have passed bans on gender-affirming care. What harm do you think this will cause if the bans are fully implemented? Thanks for that question. I, I feel like it's important to recognize that while the bans themselves are egregious, they're not evidence-based, they're going to cause direct harm. I think it's important to recognize that the conversations even around these bans are really harming people even across different state borders. It's causing significant degrees of distress, anxiety, concerns around depression, and lots of questions around access even in neighboring states. Um, because a lot of folks are still uh, having to travel to different clinics very far away because so few folks are actually able to provide gender-affirming care for uh, youth and adolescents, and e honestly, even adults. Um, uh, myself, as a primary care doctor who provides gender-affirming care for adults, I have patients who are traveling hundreds of miles to access care because there aren't enough of uh, us who are able to do that. Um, I think one thing also to really point out around these bands is they're, they're hyper-focused around access to medications and surgery when gender-affirming care is really much more than either of those. And the care needed for youth is often more focused around educating the family, making sure the youth is supported, that they have a safe environment and that their community is safe for them. Medications and surgery, if indicated, are only part of that conversation. They are not the only part of the conversation. Well, Dr. Street, uh, as you know, a lot of conversation going on in the country and supporters of these bills say that they're really just protecting children who are too young to understand the health impacts of such care. I wonder what you say uh, in response to this issue, issue, particularly of the age of children and what, it, what does it mean to be too young? Oh, I feel like this is such a loaded kind of question because we, we allow folks to make decisions at a variety of life-changing decisions at different ages. But again, the, the focus is, is really trying to make sure that the youth are supported in whatever decision they make that makes sense for them. And that this is not just somebody's made a decision all of a sudden and that the doctor is going to prescribe or going to do surgery immediately. 
this is always something that's been in conversation with a multidisciplinary team for, for a very long time, honestly, for many folks. Um, so it, this is not a decision that's made lightly for anyone. And this is a decision often made in conjunction with a multidisciplinary team and always with the support um, of, of family, essentially. If I can just ask you uh, to yeah. clarify, and we do hear this a lot about yep. young, are there are there age or is there evidence for certain ages at which it's appropriate to begin having the conversation or is it whenever the child and family are ready to have the conversation? I think it's more about when the child and the family are ready to have the conversation. They're the ones who should be really uh, like the child, the youth, the adolescent are the ones who really should be dictating their care. That's how we need to be doing it in general. We should be li listening to the patient in front of us. Um, that being said, of course, we have very clear guidelines about when we may consider medical or surgical interventions. And those are the guidelines we should be following from the World Professional mm -hmm. Association for Transgender Health, um, of which US PATH is part of. So it, it's again, one of those things where this is not um, uncharted territory, really. This is really something that has clear guidance, has uh, expert input, has more and more evidence supporting the provision of this care. So it's not, it's it's more a situation that I often see where politicians are making policies without evidence and are not seeking the input of the people affected and not seeking the input of experts who are providing that care. Well, Dr. Haddad, we of course know you very well uh, in, in the spirit of transparency, uh, you're the director uh, for the Center of Key Populations at the Community Health Center, and the health center is part of the Moses Weitzman Health System. And I'm wondering, uh, what do health systems mean when they say they offer gender-affirming care and hormone therapy, and what does that involve? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. I think it's very important to really sort of define what that is, because a lot of times I think people just focus and hone in on exactly what Dr. Sridhar was saying. It's about medications, and it is a lot more than that, right? So for me, it means that they that these health systems provide a welcoming, safe, respectful environment for the LGBT and transgender and gender diverse communities, and that all the staff is well versed, well trained, and culturally humble, right? When it comes to interacting with individuals in the LGBT community, it means, for instance, things like being able to accommodate and appropriately use people's names and pronouns. It means that we have expertise in providing quality care in issues and conditions that affect the LGB and transgender populations, including medications like hormone therapy. But as a note, there's much more to delivering comprehensive patient-centered care, which is the bread and butter of primary care health centers like ours, much more than just hormones. And health systems, I think, need to understand and provide this holistic care. And lastly, I think, and ideally, they also have a resource and referral network that also provides safe and respectful care for the patients. Well, maybe for both of you, are we losing this battle in terms of definition where everything is viewed only in one context and what, what can we do to better educate people across the board about the more comprehensive view of the work that's going on here? I mean, I feel like it's, it always comes down to actually knowing who's affected and really sharing narratives, really sharing the stories of who's having trouble accessing care and, and highlighting the harms that are happening from these, this legislation that's already been passed in, in too many states, uh, but also highlighting the, the positive benefits, the joy that we see from youth and adolescents mm -hmm. and adults who are able to access gender affirming care. I mean, honestly, for me as a clinician, there isn't a week that goes by where a patient isn't just happy, joyful, or will honestly say like you saved my life by providing very broadly gender affirming care. So. We have to share that information. We have to share those stories. Um, and then also we have to really lean into not 
backing down from any one of these battles. It's uh, essentially, I, I kind of describe it as somebody is essentially setting fire in different homes, and we have to go to each one of them and put out each one of them with the same dedication we would for any others. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it is an ongoing uh, uh, fight to make sure that people know who's benefiting and who's being harmed by these egregious policies. Well, that and, really uh, goes to the uh, uh, recent study that found that transgender children are three times, I think, as likely as the general population to have anxiety and depression, neurodevelopmental disorders. Mm-hmm. And we note that the U.S. Justice Department has said, and I'm quoting here, no person should be denied access to necessary medical care just because of their transgender status, including transgender children. There's so many questions about this out there. And Dr. Haddad, what about the argument that the medications used for gender dysphoria lack the FDA's approval for this use? Where does that fit in? Sure. So, so you know, there are a lot of things, as we sort of say, that are we don't have FDA approvals for that we use in medicine across the board, not just in, in, in transgender health. Um, and so I think first we need to acknowledge wholeheartedly that we do need more research in gender affirming care and we need more funding for research. Right. We need more active recruitment and inclusion of transgender and gender diverse individuals in all research across the board. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't know how to care for transgender and gender diverse individuals. As Dr. Street said, in the US, we've got experts in many fields of medicine and prominent medical organizations that support the gender affirming care and that we have these guidance and guidelines. And just because we do not have all the research done doesn't mean you ban gender affirming care legislatively across the board and increase further barriers for kids and adolescents in particular, but also adults in seeking the care they need and deserve. So gender affirming care, truly, as I think Dr. Street was alluding to, means in many ways supporting the social transitioning. What what do we mean by that? That means allowing kids to wear the clothes they want, cutting their hair like they want, playing with the toys that they want, providing that sort of safe uh, uh, support for families and for the patients to say that, yes, it is okay for you you to sort of feel this way, Um, and means providing the counseling. And at some point through all the shared decision-making, right, with providers, patients with families, medications may be prescribed around the time when puberty, you know, before puberty is going to hit. So puberty blockers do delay onset of puberty. And so you can start those until such a decision is made, shared, right, when they want to go through puberty and which puberty they want to go through based on their gender identity. We hear from our patients all the time that if, if, if a trans kid is about to go through the puberty, of the gender that you do not identify with. That is a very serious and, 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 and critical time and a dangerous time for them. And so I think a lot of these issues are made um, together uh, with the families, with the providers. What, what, what has to happen though, is that we cannot have that interference and being dictated by legislation. These are decisions that are made in the context of the provider-patient relationship and they need to remain there. Um, and as we sort of said, the harm in withholding this care uh, uh, to the transgender community is really detrimental and can be fatal. You know, Dr. Street, let me just pull the thread on uh, Dr. Haddad's statement about more research uh, needing to be done. Critics say instead of offering puberty blockers, clinicians should understand children could just be going through a phase and that watchful waiting and talk therapy should be used for gender dysphoria. I'm wondering if that's an area of research and also What's your reaction when you hear uh, 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 comments like that? I mean, my my general reaction is I'm I'm getting tired of us having to try and chase 
um, uh, the the moving finish line, as it were, in terms of oh, this is the evidence that that we need, or like this is the research question that people should be focusing on. We should be focusing less on whether gender affirming care um, actually is good or bad, and focus more on how can we do it better, and how can we make sure that we reduce any potential risk from any intervention, just like we do for any medical or surgical intervention. Uh, we have to really understand and characterize it. Um, right now, we're fighting the battle of like, is it good or not? And honestly, anybody who's actually providing gender affirming care can see it firsthand and within their own patient population. Any researcher who does this seriously can also see at a population level that there is significant benefit from the provision of gender affirming care, uh, including medicine, surgery, as well as broader uh, additional services. So my my general response is exasperation when people are asking for more research <laughs> to prove that it is beneficial or not. But overall, it, it, there's so much within medical and surgical care that, yes, we need more research. We always need more research to better characterize the care we're providing. Just because we need more research, that, the, the, that does not mean we stop providing the care. Um, honestly, just because we have issues um, uh, with regards to potential adverse outcomes, that does not mean we stop providing the care because we then find ways to actually reduce the adverse outcomes. We then find ways to make sure who's going to benefit the most from the interventions and so on and so forth. Too much do people focus on very small numbers of adverse outcomes for only apparently gender affirming care rather than looking at adverse outcomes for anything else. Um, that, that Again, this just for me highlights the ideological and political motivations around these bans rather than the actual evidence or care about youth and children um, or the constituents of these elected officials. You know. Well, I know that both of you are, are uh, probably equally uh, expert at the one-on-one -on -one relationship with the patient and the exam room and the family, but also in the national circles where the policies are being made and, and dialogue is happening. Uh, the American Medical Association and the Academy of Pediatrics both support gender-affirming care. Uh, the Pediatrics Academy just authorized an expanded set of guidance based on the systematic review of the evidence. But we have this pushback. Florida says not enough scientific evidence to prove that treatments improve health. And the United Kingdom, I understand, is largely stopping the use of puberty blockers, citing this gap uh, in evidence. I That's a lot, I know, to unpack, but I'm uh curious if you're uh finding that the support from your professional associations uh is is clear and strong enough that you feel you have that backing of the professional associations going forward or any concerns in that area that there's going to be a push on professional associations to uh move in a different direction I, i'm personally uh, grateful for our professional associations for actually, again, sticking to the evidence and not caving to any kind of pressure. Um, as somebody who is actively involved in organized medicine through the American College of Physicians, Society for General Internal Medicine, the American Medical Association, these are all associations that have really focused on trying to make sure that we understand the evidence, that we acknowledge where there are gaps, and really try and push the science forward and make sure that clinical care is based on that. Dr. Haddad, do you want to add anything to that? or? I mean, sure. I think I, I think our uh, our associations have really been great at sort of stepping forward and pushing back against these legislations. But I think we cannot let our guards down. And, and to this point, I think we were always going to get sort of pushback. Um, you know, from from my position at the HIVMA, I mean, we've been hearing about threats of pulling funding for mm -hmm. pediatric residencies, mm -hmm. right? Who who actually teach gender affirming care. So all of a sudden, it, it's coming at all levels, and I think we need to constantly be uh, very vigilant at uh, at the advocacy piece, at the uh, at at really 
truly honing it back down to what it is that we really want to do, right? At the end of the day, we want to protect our children, our communities, our uh, 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 and and to do that, we truly need to engage all our communities in care. Right? And it's not by banning care, right, and treatments. It's by investing in this care. It's investing in the research that we need uh, to further the uh, the betterment of the care. Investing in the holistic care, improving the access and decreasing barriers to care, and building on what we know from experts uh, as well. Instead. Like what we said, what we're seeing is the, almost the complete opposite of what's happening. We need to continue to push back. You mentioned at the top of uh, at the top of this, over 520 anti-LGBT bills in state legislatures this year alone. There are 22 states that have banned the medical and surgical care for trans youth, with five states making it a felony crime, right, to provide this medical care to youth. So you can imagine the impact not only on uh, on the patients of the communities, but on the on, on the on the medical uh, sort of teams, uh, on the recruitment of of uh, of you know we're talking about the workforce and the lack of the workforce. It's it's affecting recruiting good physicians and clinicians to these states to be able to provide this good care to to patients. And we just need to continue to really focus on the advocacy and and the voices and and really push back. And so far, I feel. Uh, you know, that our associations have really been doing that. Mm -hmm. no, and Dr. Street, you were talking a little earlier about uh, gender at birth, and you've written the following as a clinicians, we strive to be accurate. The evidence shows that using male and female is the only options in birth certificates is not consistent with scientific reality. Wondering, uh, you can explain why you think the medical profession needs to do a better job of understanding and accepting this issue. And is it only in the medical uh, uh, arena, but also in the public health, uh, the health departments and others who are really probably in control of uh, what gets put in a birth certificate. Absolutely. I mean, you're bringing up the, this notion of how we are trying to provide population statistics on who, who, who are we trying to take care of, essentially. But um, the notion of binary sex um, is something that has been only really recent in medical history in terms of from the late 1800s onwards. And it is not an accurate representation of all of the ways in which people and which bodies are actually created, as it were. Um, there are people with differences in sex development or intersex characteristics that do not fit neatly into our notions of a binary sex categorization. And oftentimes there's a lot of harm in trying to push people into those boxes. So there's been a, a significant movement to try and understand ways to update our, our medical training, update our public health, uh, essentially statistics and data structures to try and avoid uh, these potential harms, both uh, intentional and unintentional. So there's been a lot of efforts to remove, for example, as you've alluded to, the sex designation on the public portion of the birth certificate. Uh, because birth certificates are something that we carry with us for a number of issues, even even though it makes no sense that I have to show my birth certificate for for employment, it's there. And for trans individuals or people uh, born with differences in sex development, that can be a, a very harrowing experience. It can be an, an experience where they are effectively outed and could be discriminated against based on that uh, that information. So we're trying to find ways of reducing unintentional harm from essentially government use of information around people's bodies, as it were. Um, so I, I, there's much more we could talk about this. I, I do think this is a little, uh, it, it's related to what we're talking about, but it's also a much bigger can of mm -hmm. worms, as it were, because I'm talking about trying to, to break down binary categories and the medical profession is so focused on binaries um, and we are really trying to update that. 
Well, we may have to come back and revisit the issue in another conversation because it was certainly a fascinating one that I know I did not have on my uh, on my radar. So I appreciate your comment there. Uh, and if I can, uh, I want to turn to the issue of HIV uh, and AIDS uh, for a, a moment. It was 42 years ago uh, that the uh, reports came out from CDC on the clinical evidence of a disease that would later become known to all of us as AIDS. Uh, a question to both of you. Where do things stand today in terms of diagnosis of people uh, having access to uh, testing and to being diagnosed uh, if they're at risk and also treatment? Sure. So, I mean, I think as we've talked about, we do have the tools to end the HIV epidemic, right? We've got great uh, sort of tools for that. Yet, overall, we're still seeing over 36,000 new infections each year in the U.S., and as and these are preventable and the majority are still among men of sex with men the majority are in black and african americans followed by hispanics and then transgender women are also disproportionately affected uh also majority of uh, in black and hispanic trans women and we have excellent treatment for hiv so if we're able to diagnose everyone with hiv and engage them in care and on treatment First of all, their lifespan themselves will approach the expected lifespan of those without HIV. But if they're on treatment, they would also not transmit HIV to their sexual partners, regardless of the condoms, right? The whole concept of U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. And then for those who do not have HIV but continue to be exposed, we have pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, and that can prevent someone from acquiring HIV also regardless of condom use. And so, so we can and the HIV epidemic, and we can stop the new infections from occurring uh, with these tools. Yet in the US, one in three people with HIV are not on treatment, and three out of four people who could benefit from PrEP are not on PrEP. So, so we have made major strides uh, in, in the last sort of four decades, uh, and yet it's that implementation of these tools uh, that we are, are, are sort of failing in reaching everybody. Well, I want to I want to go to an area where there was incredible success uh, in, in in this area. And Dr. Haddad, you wrote a piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association with the title "Ending the HIV Epidemic: We Have the Tools, Do We Have the Will?" You know, we had the great opportunity. We we're out at the Aspen Ideas uh, Health uh, uh, Initiative uh, and had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Fauci. Uh, he and uh, former Senate Majority. Uh, Leader Bill Frist were on stage talking about uh, the work that happened with uh, PEPFAR initiative, and uh, that really reduced AIDS in uh, underdeveloped countries. I'm wondering, given that that was so power, so powerful a message that uh, with the right will, with the right economic incentives, that we really can make uh, transformational change. I'm wondering what kind of willpower uh, is missing now. Yeah, uh, you know, sort of to continue that thread that I sort of started talking about in terms of uh, uh, just now and, and, and within this piece, it's really about not the tools because we have the tools, but it's really about the context that these tools are trying to be implemented in the U.S. And you mentioned PEPFAR. And as you know, I've worked in some of the PEPFAR uh, uh, countries as well uh, in that front. And I will have to say that the PEPFAR countries, many of them are doing much better 
than the U.S. in terms of really achieving uh, uh, the viral suppression rates that we need to be doing to, in order to truly end the HIV epidemic here in the U.S. And a lot of this is, I mean, there's it's also multifactorial as to, as to what we need to be doing in the U.S. One, I think we need to concentrate on the workforce. We have a dwindling HIV workforce, and we need to build not only a, a, a more, but we need to build a more diverse one that reflects the patients we're trying to reach and engage. Uh, the stigma and discrimination and the structural racism, that needs to be addressed. And it's not being addressed by passing these laws and policies that not, not help, but further embed the structural racism, the anti-women, anti-gay, anti-trans sort of laws that are sort of happening that are pushing the, 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 the people who are at the highest risk who are getting infected right now with HIV away from healthcare rather than bringing them in uh, uh, into healthcare. I think there are models that we should learn from uh, in, in what's called the developing world. And Dr. Fauci reminded us when he went to uh, Africa to figure out whether or not people could manage uh, all of the, the, the uh, dosages, the dosing that was required, he came back and said, my God, they're way ahead of us. They can manage all of this. I'm just wondering, uh, do we have a similar situation where there's a there's an intervention model that we can embrace. And of course, in the community health center world, uh, Dr. Geiger comes out of South Africa with that community-oriented uh, uh, model that he brings to, back to, the, to America. So where might we learn from? I, I think there's a lot to learn. Um, uh, the differentiated service delivery models uh, that are implemented in all the PEPFAR countries are exactly what we need to start be doing here in the U.S. Looking at those who are doing really well don't need to come in and those who need more support to get more support on that front. So looking at this, looking at street medicine and being go being able to get reimbursed and find ways to be able to sort of go out on into the streets and meeting people where they're at. The use of community health workers um, and peers, which is has been a big backbone of, of success in a lot of the PEPFAR countries that we are just starting to talk about here in the U.S. So there's definitely a lot of things that we can learn from um, uh, uh, the PEPFAR countries and bring them back to the U.S. for, for us to improve our, our care. Well, you, you point to so many great examples, and I know you're a big fan of the mobile vans uh, as well as team vans that can go anywhere uh, in the community where there are people we might need to reach. But we remember those early days of the uh, HIV epidemic. We also remember you know, quite a few people in healthcare who were not willing, ready, or able to step up and in and provide uh, the kind of care uh, that both of you do. And I, I understand, I, I maybe need clarification on it, uh, that there are a number of states uh, they say more than one in eight uh, states where LGBTQ plus people are living, where doctors, nurses, other healthcare providers can legally refuse to treat them. This is according to the Movement Advancement Project. Now, I don't know whether that's refused to treat for anything from you know your dental care to your routine primary care, or it's specific uh, to uh, gender affirming care and the care we've been talking about. But how much of a problem is this getting to be in terms of healthcare providers? who perhaps have a very different view of all this, just refusing to see people at all. I, I think it goes, I've gotten to the point where I, I tell my students and trainees that if you have any deeply held moral, moral beliefs against the provision of any care to people you don't agree with, you're probably in the wrong profession. 
Um, and if you are against the provision of gender affirming care, that's all, all well and good, but you need to know who's going to be able to provide that care for your patients. Um, and again, if you are against the provision of care based on deeply held moral beliefs, I'm very curious as to why you're in a caring profession where you need to be able to care for everyone who's coming to your door. Um, the the kind of legislation you're describing is, is providing uh, uh, inappropriate protection to discriminate, essentially, um, uh, for healthcare professionals. It, it includes a number of professions, including pharmacists, who won't provide, for example, Plan B or won't uh, dispense hormone therapy for, for trans individuals. Um, and what it gets down to is that happens more often in what is, quote unquote, seen as not an emergent situation, definitely is not allowed in, in ERs or surgical emergencies and such. But again, those laws are allowing clinicians to discriminate when they shouldn't be. Thank you both for joining us, and, and thanks to our audience. Uh, be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for emails and updates. And again, thank you both for the important work that you're doing. Thank you for yeah. having us. Good. Thank you for your time. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc., the views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of conversations on healthcare or its affiliated entities.